You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. And I want to invite you then, as is our custom and as is kind of a rhythm for us to to open the Bible together. So if you've got a Bible, open with me to James chapter 1. It's toward the end of the Bible. Don't be afraid of the table of contents. Don't, don't be afraid of Googling how to find that or, uh, or, or, or whatever device can get you access to this book of the Bible. I want you to, to join me there. And this will be, our, I believe it's our fourth week as we're trekking through this letter from the half-brother of Jesus who, who knew Jesus in many ways better than anyone we could imagine. And, and if there was anyone who could who could you know, debunk the claims of Jesus. It was the one that shared a bunk with him. Um, I did not mean to do that. I did not. Oh, the dad jokes. Oh, they just, I can't. Turning into your father, right? All, if anyone could debunk the claims of Jesus, it would be the one that, that spent the closest and the longest amount of time with Jesus. And yet we find the, the, the historian Eusebius tells us that instead of recanting, James dies violently in a way that testifies to who Jesus is and what he's done. And we even saw at the beginning that if there's anyone who wouldn't call someone Lord, it would be a brother, right? I don't know. None of you want to call your brother Lord. I'm servant, you master, right? And that's how James introduces us to himself. He says, look, I'm a servant of God in Jesus Christ. And so so this, this letter, this practical wisdom, as we've shared uh, I, I hope over the last couple of weeks, like it's a down-to-earth, it's a street-level understanding of faith, a, a more authentic and holistic view of what it means to trust in Jesus. Now, it was written to Christians in Jerusalem who were beginning to experience hardship. Now, I want to just share with you, if, if, if you're a Christian in the room, you would call yourself a Christian, the claims that James makes here are meant to be incisive, abrupt. In many ways, they're, they're, they're confrontational and they're an invitation to repent and experience deep, deep grace. But if you're in this room and you're not a Christian, if you're connected with us in some way, you're not a believer, I'm especially glad you're here. And I want to invite you to eavesdrop. Right? I, want, I want you to kind of listen in on a family conversation. This is what Christians believe. And maybe if you're in this room and you're not sure you're, what, what does it mean to be a Christian, James kind of answers those questions in a very street-level, practical way. So I want to begin reading. I want to read verse 16 to the end of the first chapter, but we're going to spend the majority of our time in verse 19. And I want you to see, I want you to see kind of the connection here that James begins to introduce a theme here that he's going to discuss for the rest of his letter namely words, the things we speak and the things that God speaks. And, and you'll see the connection of the idea that we saw last week in verse seven, or excuse me, verse 18. And then you'll see as it kind of sets the stage for what we'll discuss today, beginning in verse 19 through 27. Now, the book of James is such a like, power-packed, just an amazingly dense amount of wisdom stuffed into each word and sentence. I couldn't possibly plumb the depths of it. So in many ways, we're going to walk through this together. There's three sections of this passage we're going to walk through. And in many ways, we're just going to go until I run out of time uh, or until the first person falls asleep, and then, and then we'll wrap up. There's so much here, and I want to commend it to you. I want this to be something you're reading uh, throughout the week. You can, you can read this in, in one sitting, the entire book of James. And, and I want you to reflect on it. In many ways, you'll see the depths of wisdom that we are only scratching the surface of this morning. So beginning in verse 16, all the way to the end of the chapter. Do not be deceived, 
my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who intently, who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he looks like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. A religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Words matter. Words matter, and the thought and the theme and motif of words will be something that show up for the rest of the book. You saw in verse 14 or verse 18 that even the word of God is what brings us to life by faith. After all, it was the word of God that brought all of existence into being. It was the word made flesh. Remember, as we saw in the Gospel of John, that was in the beginning, Jesus, the very expression and word of God came to be incarnate. That is, it, it took on human form so that we would hear and see what God is like in Christ. And that word, that declaration of what is true, what is eternally true, what, what will be true thousands of years from now, brings us to life. We're kind of a first fruits. We're like the, we're the first to be coming to life and fruitfulness of God's word being spoken. And so this idea of a word is the focus of this section, these three kind of subsections. You'll see kind of section one from verse 19 to 21. Section two here is kind of, maybe in your Bible you'll see it from 22 to 25. And then the last couple of verses round out kind of the third and final subsection here. But, but the theme that you see woven through it is what we speak, what our words are. Namely, how we speak, how quick, quickly we are to speak and express anger with with humility or with impurity. Secondly, you see the ways in which we actually hear and receive and then act upon words. And then lastly, the ways in which if we aren't speaking and living in light of those words and the way that God has reached out to us, we've missed the boat completely. And so the, the concern here for James in many ways is 
is, is this. Like he, he wants them to begin to live out their faith wholeheartedly, holistically, you might even say. One, one commentary describes the theme of James as a holistic spirituality. The whole person is engaged in the life of faith. This is incredibly personal even for me. I was raised in a context in which it seemed functionally like the goal of the church was to get people to say the right things. Maybe you, maybe you can relate to this, right? Repeat after me this prayer or say this thing, right? Memorize this right confession. Say this thing in the right way. And then we kind of rehearse these right things. But, but I don't know if you notice, and I just noticed that it, regularly there was a disconnect between what we seem to encourage people to say and they believed and the way that we actually lived. And James comes along and says, you can say all you want. You can get it right. But what you believe ultimately is visible in the way that you live. Now, this is incredibly provocative for us. You might have all the right answers. You might consider yourself a Christian, and yet if you were to look closely at your life, what you truly believe, what you truly love, what you truly worship is on display. And trials, as we've been introduced to over the last couple of weeks, expose that. And the trials that these people were facing seemed to overwhelm their view of everything. It seemed to drown out everything else. Their trials began to cause impatience and expressions of anger. So here's what I think in these three sections we begin to see. Authentic faith, right? Street-level faith, real-life faith, genuine faith, practical faith. It's humble, it's holy, and it's humane. And so last week we saw that, that, that introduction to the concept and motif of words and speech is actually what brings us to life, right? It, the language of birth there, we brought forth by the declaration of truth, namely that God forgives and receives sinners. And that, when, it, when that settles down deep into you, when you see the weight of your own sin and yet see the, the, the beauty of this gift of God's grace, it messes you up. It turns you around. Some of the phrases you'll hear some people talk about, it. maybe you heard someone say something like a, a born-again Christian. Maybe you heard this? Well, that's a redundancy, right? There, there's, there's this sense in which, like, those are the same thing. If you're not born again, namely brought forth by the word of the gospel here, you're not a Christian. And so this is maybe especially important for many of you who, who maybe have kind of like bought into this belief, like, I was raised a Christian. I was born a Christian. Well, the problem with that especially is James. If anybody was born into the right family, right? If anyone was born into Christianity, it would have to be James, right? The brother of Jesus, like, here I am. But notice, he never introduces himself that way. He simply introduces himself as what? A servant. I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus. I've seen the resurrected Lord who happened to be my brother. You see this in 1 Peter, that we are born again of imperishable, divine, eternal seed. 1 John tells us that we are born of God, and this is how we live. And so here's the thing. For many of you, as you, as you think about this word that brings us to life that we see in the first section, we receive it as an implanted word with humility and meekness. One of the things you might need to hear me say is that often you, you, know, you, you, you kind of think you know and this is one of the confrontations James presents to you. Many of you think Jesus can help you be better and do better. And that couldn't be further from the truth. And that's not good news. 
God doesn't in Christ make us better. He makes us new. He doesn't make you a nicer version of yourself. He makes you alive. And so first and foremost, this isn't about, hey, hey do these things because you can. It's, no, you're dead. No, go, no one goes to the cemetery and tells people what to do. Like that's, that person is disconnected from reality. And yet Jesus has that authority. He makes dead souls, dead in their trespass and sin, alive to God through, through, through grace in Christ. Like This is the new birth that we see. And the means by which we pass from death to life, did you catch it? Is hearing and receiving. It seems like what James puts on display for us in this section and throughout the rest of the book is that being bad at hearing can cost you your soul. Did you hear that? In the end, the way that you hear and the way that you respond, verse 21, receiving that word, did you catch it? Is the power to save your soul. Hearing, maybe the way to think about it, listening, receiving, and meekness and humility has eternal consequences. The gospel comes as a word declared to us. It is good news of Christ's victory over sin, death, hell, and the grave. And so we simply believe, we rejoice, we respond in faith. And so this means that if the gospel comes as a transforming declaration to us, then the posture of a Christian is one of humility and repentance, a posture of hearing and receiving. That posture, even the posture that you occupy right now, is not a coincidence. It's the posture of our souls. We do this by God's grace every week. Do you hear the first and foremost Beloved brothers, he says it again, it starts with love. I love you. I want you to receive this because I love you. I want what's best for you. And we see this idea of they're quick to hear and they're slow to speak and slow to anger. That is that we're, we're in this sense to understand these things, we're to receive these things in humility. That is the posture that you and I take every Sunday, right? It, you are now sitting in a posture of listening and hearing. And I stand up here and I do all the talking. But that's not a coincidence. In fact, that's simply a reflection of hopefully what I've been doing this last week, right? Hopefully, if I'm effective at all, if I have anything to say to you of meaning even now, it's because of the hours of preparation that I put into it this last week. Even then, if, if, I, if I ever like happen to stumble on something insightful or helpful, it is only a reflection of how Fortunate I am to have heard and listened to that wisdom for myself. That's it. And sometimes on, on a given Sunday, you might like, he did more talking than listening this week, right? He seemed to be quicker to speak than he was to listen, right? It's okay. Join the club. There's a lot of grace on the way here. But what you're doing right now is not, it's, it's not an accident. It's not just some sort of religious ritual. It is a formative practice. The posture of listening for God to speak is a posture of our souls. And every Sunday when we get together and we you know, it's, like, it's not like a, you know, let's, let's listen to this guy. No, it's, you take the posture. We have something to receive from God. Of God's grace and mercy that he would come and speak to us. And, then, and we take this posture for about an hour, right? Some of you are, you, woo, right? 
But it's not a mistake. This is the very posture of our souls. Now, in wisdom, I want to share with you, I feel like I've quoted these two verses so many times over the last year. And they're right out of Proverbs chapter 18. The wisdom that James gives us here is timeless wisdom. I'll share with you in, some, in just a bit. But right, he says, like, in this sense, you're quicker and you prioritize hearing and listening more than you prioritize speaking and expressing anger. Now, this is just the wisdom of Proverbs 18. This is the wisdom of 2020 21, right? This is it, man. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. And so isolation, right? Think of it as like a closing your ears to hear reason is an act of foolishness. In fact, it's an act of self-seeking selfishness that rebels against sound judgment. Now, I mean, this, praise God, I, I love you all, but like this has been a strange season of conspiracy theories, right? And you don't have to join a cult anymore to disconnect from reality, you can just isolate yourself on an app. You can, let, you can let an algorithm surround you with things you really want to hear, right? If you don't want to hear anyone disagree with you, it's really easy. You don't have to join a compound and drink Kool-Aid anymore. Like, you just, it's built into the system. But notice, that's a folly. That's a folly. And, and when you isolate yourself in that cult-like way, it's self-seeking. You're just fulfilling your own desires. You just want to hear what you want to hear. And it's against sound, sound judgment. It ends in death. You either end up drinking Kool-Aid to get on, on a, like, like when you isolate yourself from outside speaking, from someone in counsel, right, someone offering you like understanding and wisdom, it always ends in death. You drink Kool-Aid to get on a spaceship, right, or you fly a building into the side of the World Trade Center, right? Like in the end, when you isolate yourself from reasonable ideas, it ends in death. You destroy yourself and others every single time. Now, it shouldn't surprise us, right? I mean, or after all, uh, in March, we were like, hey, everybody isolate, right? Let's all, <laughs> and so in many ways, it was like we, we were all walking into a, a trap, right? Hey, everybody isolate yourself. And when we came out of, when we came out of quarantine, um, or as one day when we come out of quarantine, I don't know what this is, right? But when, when, it's no surprise that we came out and we were a little bit outraged, we were a little bit angry, because we'd probably been like subject to a lot of algorithms that were just feeding our own desire to hear what we wanted to hear. And we walk outside and we're like, I disagree with you, but right? and, it's, and, and we don't know what to do with ourselves. But catch it, like James says, real wisdom is to not isolate yourself. Real wisdom is to subject your views to wise counsel. There's a second part, kind of an we see James kind of expounding upon. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. I mean, I'll, like, if you have more opinions than you have understanding, the Bible says that's foolish, right? And so, like, I know you have strong opinions, but I don't know. How, cite your sources, right? This is something in, like, in our house, like, you know, when <laughs> this, is frustrates, uh, this frustrates my wife and others, and people are like, did you hear that? And it's like, time out, stop, hang on a minute. Where did you hear that? Can you share me with that with me? Can I, like, can you send that to me? Because I, huh, like, that, I, I mean... Oh, one time one person said something on a blog somewhere about something. Okay, time out. You almost did research. You were close. You were on the way. But if you have more opinions than books, you got a problem. The Bible calls you a fool. And so you and I are meant to be thoughtful, quick to hear, to listen, to gain understanding, and have more understanding than we have opinions. 
And so, James is kind of applying some, I think, practical wisdom for you and I, right? Like, we're really, we're really, I don't know about you, this is maybe just me, I'm, I really want to isolate myself from some crazy views. I really want to isolate myself from people that would disagree with me. I really have a lot of opinions, of a ton. And yet, James offers us something. That, that actually won't, expressing that outrage, did you catch it? That won't actually get you what you want. Did you hear that? It won't actually bring about righteousness of God. It won't actually make us right with God. Right? And that shouldn't surprise us. James regularly expounds upon Jesus' teaching, right? Jesus who says, look, seek first what? His kingdom, his righteousness, and all these other things, they'll be added. But first and foremost, see his kingdom. Seek it. Pursue it. You can't by your own will or outrage bring about God's will. Only God can do it. So what is this first section really about, though? Notice he says, therefore. So I'll confess, I've been in James Bible studies where we just kind of hammer that. Like, hey, you know, stop being angry. You know, stop, stop speaking without thinking and sit down and listen, right? Now, those are, I, those are wisdom. But they're introductions to what James really wants us to see. Did you catch that? Therefore, right? Put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. So it's as if to say here, if, if, if you have a problem with saying things you regret, if you have a problem with having more opinions than you have understanding, if you have a problem saying things that you shouldn't say, then your problem, did you catch it? Is sin. There's filthiness, there's rampant wickedness that needs to be confessed. And secondly, did you catch it? You have a problem with pride. Because his response is repentance. Confess. Like, here's what's filthy. Here's, what's, here's the wickedness that, I, that I've come so comfortable with. And then the second thing, did you catch that? Here's the meekness I lack. Maybe the best way I can say this is like, the goal here isn't that you stop being angry. Did you catch that? The Bible actually says, right, like, in your anger, be angry. Don't sin. The catch is, who's kingdom is threatened. Isn't that what anger is about? Isn't anger just a response to something that's threaten, threatening you? And what does he tell you? Just, this, this will blow your mind. This was some wisdom passed on to me, and it comes right out of James. Notice the contrast to anger here is not joy. The contrast to anger here is not even self-control. The contrast to anger here is humility. And so, most of our anger is outrage over encroachment upon our kingdom, isn't it? Right? I mean, because Jesus actually expresses anger purely and righteously. Remember one of the first things he does in the Gospel of John? He, he goes and he flips the tables in the, in, the, the, in the temple, in the court of the Gentiles, and starts to make a weapon. I mean, that's, oh, okay, all right, okay, Jesus. But what was his anger about? We find out it was a fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy that the Messiah would have zeal for what? For my house, says the Lord. And his zeal was for God's kingdom come to earth. Remember the story, right? Like people would come from, from far off and they would come and, and in their long journeys, they, they wouldn't bring animals to sacrifice because they couldn't 
bring the trek, right? Couldn't, couldn't afford to, to bring them along on the trek. And so these, these immigrants, these refugees, these sojourners would make their way to the, to the court of the Gentiles. And, and the people there, instead of saying, oh, God is merciful, he welcomes you, come right on in, they said, hey, let's make a buck. And so they did two things. First, they started selling these animals at, at exorbitant rates. But the second thing is they, they started selling them with a bad exchange, right? So just imagine our brother or sister coming like from Mexico, right, coming up and, 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 they, and, they, and they visit and, and they're like, I want to be made right with God. And, and you're like, that's great. Here, let me sell you this thing, but I'm going to sell it to you like you're at an airport or like a, you know what I'm talking about, like, or like at your, you're at a resort or Disneyland, right? If you're at like a ski resort, like I need some sunscreen, that'll be $900. Like, what? And so they're like, okay. I'm, and so they were taking advantage of them, right? Because you're desperate. You know, like I need a neck pillow. It's $900. Oh, okay. Here we go, right? When you're desperate, you'll do this. So, so they were preying on people who are desperate, and then they were ripping them off. Like, hey, I only brought pesos. Great. Here's a normal exchange rate, but it's a peak season, and so jacked it up, right? And Jesus walks in and says, you know, flips the tables. That's not what God is like. God welcomes. God is the one who lays himself in Christ on the altar. God is the one who pays and absorbs the cost of sin. And Jesus, with righteous anger for God's kingdom and the character of God, with zeal, flips the tables. Here's the problem. Most of the time, our anger is an expression of an encroachment on our own kingdom. I mean, ask yourself, are you really mad? Are you mad at your kids because they're, they're like rebelling against God's righteous law? Or are you yelling at them because they're a bad reflection on you? You're worried they review what you're like. Right? Are, are, are you mad at that person, your spouse, your friend? Or like, are you mad at that person because they're like, they, they're, they seem like they're far from God? Or are you mad because they don't worship you like you wish they did? You get the idea? Most of our anger is a, is a demonstration of defensiveness. It's a demonstration of fear. It's a demonstration that we feel attacked. I've shared with many of you, like for me and uh, some of our gospel community leaders know this, like most of my anger is an expression of the feel of like I'm out of control right? I'm out of control, right? And then, and then and I'm like, I can anger my way back to control, which always works, right? <laughs> but maybe for you, anger is an expression of you feel like the idol of approval is threatened. Whenever the real you is visible, when your real weakness, when your real flaws and sins and failures are on display, you're furious, Start blaming everyone else. Because why? You, your kingdom, your image is threatened. Some of you, you express the most anger when maybe your comfort is threatened. Right? I'm, I'm entitled to comfort, right? Do you get the idea? And he says the problem with expressing these anger, this kind of anger, isn't that you need to stuff it, right? That's what many of your families, maybe that's, some of you are like from exploding families and some of you are from like stuff it families. And he says the problem with that expression of anger isn't that you just need to be quiet next time, which, by the way, never works, right? I love it when someone says, I wasn't going to say anything. That's never been true in your whole life, okay? <laughs> no one thinks that's true about you. You, are, you looked in the mirror and forgot. It's, okay, right? The problem isn't that you expressed it. The problem is sin and pride. He says, therefore, repent. Dig up what's dirty and filthy in your life. See it as the Lord sees it. Bring it out into the light where Jesus is, that he shines on it, renews it, and extends grace. 
and receive with humility, meekness, this implanted word. Authentic faith assumes a posture of hearing and receiving. Did you catch the stakes? They couldn't be higher. They couldn't be any higher. It says, doing this, receiving with meekness this implanted word, right? You expect, you know, James, is, he doesn't soften it. He says what? It's actually what's able to save your soul. If you don't soften yourself to receive God's word, his, his grace and mercy poured out for you in the declaration of the good news of Christ's perfect life, atoning death, and victorious resurrection, then you have cut yourself off from any sort of salvation. And friend, James wants you to know, for you, apart from Christ, rejecting his mercy to you, this life is as good as it's going to get for you. There is no hope for you because you have cut yourself off from the word that can save your soul. Notice what happens. You, you, in humbly receiving it, you, you, are, you are allowing yourself to be contradicted by God. You marvel at it, and then you begin to see its application and the implication of this word. Maybe the best way to see it is like, when's the last time God disagreed with you and you liked it? Or, or do you simply open this word and, or maybe you just don't because you don't like anyone disagreeing with you, but like, maybe you just open this word and you look for all the things that confirm what you already believe. Your list of memory verses sounds an awful lot like, you know, where, what, like the, either like the, the context in which you were raised or the anti-context, because they were crazy, right? And friend, like, notice that that's not a real relationship. That's the relationship you have with a robot. Real relationship doesn't come from simply like getting only agreement. It's, it's humbly receiving. It's hearing, being quick to understand. After all, like, uh, even in my own most meaningful relationships, like, I would love to tell you that, like, my favorite thing about my wife is that she always agrees with me. I would look, like, she always tells me how smart I am and always, like, just, agree, like, just never disagrees with me. That's just not true. And to want that is to not want a relationship. It's to want a robot. And praise God, I have my wife and other godly men and women around me who disagree. Notice the posture that we're meant to take is one of humility. Because after all, it's one thing to look intently, as we see here, to, to search the Scripture. But it's a whole other thing to let the Scripture search you. Just functionally, have you ever noticed how humble people are really happy? And really proud people are really bitter and angry. Really proud people, everything you do is an encroachment upon their kingdom. You notice that? Like everything's an offense. Everything's something you got to fight about. You can't be happy if you're full of self-pity or entitlement. And so when something goes wrong, proud people are like, something is terribly wrong, right? This is not how it's supposed to be. Humble people receive it and go like, man, maybe God's teaching me something. 
Maybe I made a mistake. Pride causes anger because we think we know exactly how things should go. And so therefore, we're quick to speak and slow to understand and hear. And last week, we saw that that word is what causes us to be born again. This is really not just about what you should do in listening and speaking. If you catch that, this is really about grace towards us in repentance of filthiness and rampant wickedness and receiving with humility that word. So, there's two parts of it. Did you catch in the first verse? You and I are to get rid of the know-it-all, proud, controlling, angry spirit. We're to confess it when we feel it, right? And just stop for a minute. Like, am I outraged about God's kingdom or am I outraged about my own? That, the answer to that question alone will solve most of our problems. The essential truths of God's grace for your life have been implanted in you. They're not going anywhere. They're going to stay there. The trajectory of you and your life is set, and God has absolutely secured it for us. And so, one of the things that, that we learn, and, and I would just say this in a, in a way that is invitation to sanctification, how do you encounter the Bible? There's, there's something that, that we notice on a regular basis, I think, in our church. And whenever God changes your heart and plants that word of life in you, you have a new relationship to the Bible, don't you? Right? And so if you're, like, if you're bored because of the Bible, if you're, if you're disgusted by it, like if you're just like, oh, it's archaic, it's outdated. I was like, okay, you, here's, here's the thing. Stop for a minute and question whether or not you really should keep calling yourself a Christian. Because we have a new relationship to God's Word. It's been implanted in us. It's, it's bearing fruit. In many ways, it's uprooting all the other things that were planted in our own lives. But we have a new relationship to the Bible. We begin to, we begin to receive it. We, we want to learn from it. We want to submit our thoughts and actions to it. Because genuine faith is one that is humble. We take a posture of wanting to hear and wanting to receive. Now, a Bible, for example, in this case, the Bible can be incredibly informative to an unbeliever. You can learn a lot of stuff. But when you're thirsty, or when you're really hungry, or when you're underwater and you need a breath of fresh air, how do you respond when you get it? It's really hot. You're dehydrated and thirsty. You drink the water, right? Do you go like, hmm, that's very interesting, no, you do like the commercial. You're like, ah, right? When you're starving and you finally get a bite of food to eat, do you go like, that's, that's fascinating. You know, wow, that, I learned a lot there. No. You're overwhelmed with satisfaction. You're like, oh, so, I was so hungry. When you can't breathe and you finally get a breath of fresh air, you, you take it in deep. Notice that's our relationship to God's word now. It's not an idea that we toss around. It's food. It's water, it's breath, it's life. We marvel at it and we see its application. We humbly receive it. We, we take a posture of teachability and humility such that we, we want to learn. And kind of the circular part of it is we, we start to, like beloved brothers, we start to become quicker to hear. I want to know more. I want to hear more about that. I, I want to understand more about that. Or you continue in bitterness. 
but we receive with meekness. The issue is not one of whether or not you should or shouldn't say something. Maybe you should or shouldn't. The issue is humility. Here's just a practical application for you. It's like, I want you to hear my own heart on this. Like, in pride, you will always, always be able to come up with a good reason to not listen to people, right? Right? There, in pride, you will always, have a, you always be able to justify why you think that person's an idiot, right? There's always reasons. You'll always be able to, in pride, you'll always be able to, to dismiss whatever someone says. Like, well, of course you say that. You're up, right? You just, in pride, that's what you do. In humility, you will always be able to learn from even the buffoon. Right? Imagine the, the picture of King David caught in his sin, right? And the, and the prophet who comes and says, you're the man, you're the one, you're the, you're the sinner, right? You can, you can imagine the king rightly saying, who are you, right? Who are you to talk to the king? I'm the king. And you can rightly think he, he would have had a million good reasons to dismiss what was being said. But what happens? The Lord works, softens him, and in humility, he goes, woe is me. A sinner, right? You get this picture that he's like, God, before you and you alone have I sinned. And so just practically, do you find yourself learning from people that you disagree with? Or are you really, really good at dismissing people? Because the posture here is not about your ears and mouth. It's about your heart. And you either respond in repentance, you want to bring that filthiness to the surface and receive what God has for you, or you'll think you know better. So now think how that applies to the next few passages, starting in verse 22. But, as if to say, like, you got that? You, you see how we receive the word and repent and, re, and, and respond in humility, and this, this shapes us in a certain way? Now then, now that you receive it, act on it. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. If, if authentic faith takes a posture of hearing and receiving, then authentic faith also grows in holiness in humility. And the way in which we do that is when we look intently to see in Scripture and to hear from God what we're really like and how we're to respond. Now, this isn't new. Let me just give you a crash course. If you've been walking through the Bible and reading it and learning from it, these things will jump out at you. Proverbs 8. Now, therefore, my sons, listen to me, for blessed are those who what? Keep my ways. As if to say, like, you could hear all the wisdom, collect it all you want, but if you don't keep them and respond, then you've missed it. Proverbs 29, where there is no vision, the people cast off restraint, but blessed is what? He who keeps the law. Now, that, that gets thrown out of, out of context. When it says vision there, it means the revelation of God's law. It doesn't mean someone who has wicked good ideas, right? Like, you have no plan, and so plan to fail. I mean, yes, that's practically true. But that's not what this text is about. It's if, you don't, if, there's, if there's no submission to God's revelation and his law, then what happens? You'll throw off restraint, but blessing is what you'll miss out on. Matthew 7, Jesus himself. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and what? Acts on them. It's like a wise man who built his house on the rock rather than building a house like on the beach of sand, right? Luke 8, but he replied when this parents and, or excuse me, when his mom and brothers came to confront him, my mother and my brothers are whom? Those who hear the word of God and carry it out. 
It says in Luke chapter 11, as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast with which you nursed. It's like, this is the greatest Mother's Day blessing, right? Like, blessed is your mom, Jesus. She's the greatest. She's amazing. And Jesus says, no, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Just think about the contrast Jesus is saying there. Like, there's no one who knew and loved Jesus more than his own mom, right? There's no one on the earth who could have known and understood and, and loved Jesus more than, than his own mom. And yet, what does he say? That's, that's not even the blessing. You and I have a greater blessing. And so, as we, we read in Luke chapter 2, so did Mary, I believe, receive this blessing of hearing the word, seeing the word, responding to the word, and keeping it. John 13, Jesus says, if you know these things, blessing comes from what? Blessed are you if you do them. Appropriating the word after marveling at it into our own lives is the posture that we're meant to take. We're meant to hear this word and then you're meant to respond in some way. Maybe just briefly I'll say that one of the most important things in your life is not what even we're doing right now in the hour and a half that we're here the most important things happening in your life happen every day, every morning, every afternoon, and every evening for the rest of the week. And the extent to which this is something that sets and charts the course for you this week is the extent to which we've actually received it with humility. Otherwise, he tells a parable. Imagine a person who looked at his face in the mirror and then immediately went away and forgot what he was like, right? Like, Looked in the mirror, said, I'm clearly, you know, this is, you got to imagine, this, is one, this wasn't a place like we live right now. We have lots of mirrors. So, like, looking at a reflective, shiny surface, seeing themselves and go like, hey, this is what my hair looks like, this is, and then walking away and then thinking, like, you know, I'm a blonde-haired, blue-eyed, right? You're like, it's like, no, you're not. That's, no one thinks that's true. And yet, that's the kind, it's, it's meant to be hyperbole, right? That's the kind of fool we are if we've, like, collected a lot of Bible knowledge and ignored Bible application. I'll just say this to you. Like, uh, this, is, this is one of, uh, as Christians, we're the ones who have the highest view of grace. Right? We have just this massive and high view of grace. It covers everything. We sing, we sing it every week, right? His mercy, it's more. Right? Join me in walking this out together, but that means we ought to be the most gracious people to interact with. And often, some of us with the highest view of grace, right, we push our glasses up and we are incredibly ungracious. And he says, this, this is foolish. To proclaim this and to live that is the height of duplicity. And what happens in the end, did you catch that? You miss out on what? Blessing and liberty. You miss out on all these good things. So, ask yourself some of these things. Are you applying some of these graces to your own life such that like, when you experience a truth, you immediately begin to know where you should appropriate it? You begin to know what sin that convicts and what grace ought to be applied? Do you immediately know, oh, this, hey, this changes the way I relate to fill in the blank? 
This changes the way I'm going to respond to my boss, my spouse, my friend, right? This changes things because if not, you've missed out. Words matter. And for James, words matter in particular when we see how they're applied in our own lives. We do what it says. Otherwise, we are inherently here self-deceived. I'll give you an example of uh, someone I, I, I love dearly who, who taught me the most about this. Um, a person who, who helped kind of help me see this. And it was a, it was a person I love dearly who, who battled with anorexia. And, and sin has the ability to destroy so many things. And, and when this person, you know, looked in the mirror, they saw themselves like 10 sizes bigger than they were. And in some profound way, that's exactly what the enemy means to do. We look in the mirror and think something about ourselves that's not true. And I want to encourage you, like, there's kind of two sides of this, and and this is, I believe, the encouragement we're called to, to have here. You look in the mirror and you see a failure. You see a miserable person. You see someone who's unloved, unaccepted, and rejected, right? And we're meant to be a people who come around and say, like, that's not true. Because of Christ, you are, you are not that person. And his grace is sufficient for these things. So, in the first sense, we can receive, right, with humility, correction, and conviction of sin, right? I say this on a regular, like, you, you are a miserable failure. Stop, stop trying to ignore that. Stop trying to trick everybody. You are a moral failure, You're a terrible failure who is incredibly loved by God in Christ. Those things are true at the same time. And your failure has no bearing on his grace. And so when you look in the mirror and see only failure in such a way that inhibits your ability to receive love from the Father, friend, I have good news for you. That's not who you are. In Christ, this is what you look like. A beloved child in whom the Father is pleased, whom he loves dearly and delights in greatly. And when we look into this perfect law, did you catch that? That starts to liberate us. When we, when we look into and receive God's word for us, it actually sets us free. What a paradox, right? The law of liberty, right? We're an individualist. We're kind of like law. I mean, you know, like we, we, we think of restraint. Right, but, but you have to think about it in, in the context that James means it is the law given to the people who were Israelites was the law of liberty. The law that was given to them was that they were no longer slaves. They were no longer oppressed. And the law, think about it, one of the commands was that they do nothing once a week. Right, just think about how radical that would have been for a slave, right? Hey, you know, hey, Pharaoh, guess what I'm going to do today? Nothing. Want me to make bricks without straw? Nope. I am one of God's people. He is my God. He deserves my allegiance, and in him I find rest. So when he says the law of liberty, think about what he's saying. You are no longer in in prison to sin. You are now set free. And what I have set out for you is freedom, it's liberty, and then did you catch that? It's blessing. 
And that blessing overflows into how you act, how you do, how you respond to this. So again, think of obedience to God's law in this as liberating, right? If you went to a slave, an Israelite, in bondage for generations in Egypt, and you gave them the law, and you told them, this Saturday, sleep in and do nothing all day, right? They wouldn't be like, stop telling me what to do, right? <laughs> they would go like, I can do that? That's, I'm, fr- I'm, free to obe- I'm free to obey that? That's who God is, and that's what his liberating work is like. Do you get the picture? So also in Christ, we say, look, obey. But we say in such a way like, you're free. You're not that person anymore. We look intently. The more practical advice here is this. Did you catch it? Like you look intently and remember. Maybe this is all I'll tell you. Christian, we're meant to take the mirror with us, right? This, this is to be written on our hearts. It's meant to be the thing we memorize and listen to, and it helps us remember who we really are, right? I've shared this with you in this last year, man. Just look at the time you've spent in the Bible on a given day and look at the time you've spent on social media and it probably explains everything you need to know about yourself right now, right? There's no way you can spend a few minutes in the morning in the Bible and hours on social media and expect to be sane, right? Like this, you can't do it. And we're meant to take the mirror with us so that when, when the enemy says that's not, you know, you're, like, right, you're rejected, you're not accepted, we say, no, I, I, that's, that's not true. You know, I understand your opinion. I can learn from it. And yet that's not true. Not in any eternal sense. Lastly, notice how this word plays out and how we speak and respond. Authentic faith demonstrates care to the powerless. Verse 26, if anyone thinks he's religious, right? So maybe, maybe you're, you're like, yes, I got it right. I know, I know what I need to say. I know what I need to do. He says, okay, let's check your heart. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, stop there. This is simply an exposition of Jesus' words, right? Jesus says that it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. And so we hate this, right? This is why we say, like, we, we, you've heard me maybe say this is like, we have sayings like, I'm just saying, right? We say something wrong, we kind of backtrap. I'm just saying, right? And Jesus says, that's not how humans work, right? Like, no one's just saying, the words of our mouth are the overflow of our heart, and they're meant to be a cause, a cause for humility, right? Like, ooh, right? I mean, if, if that thing you just said was a one-off and Jesus is wrong, then you're right. Don't say it again. But if Jesus is right and that thing you said that you shouldn't have said is actually a reflection of the darkness of your own heart, then, friend, here, there's grace for you. There's transformation for you. You don't have to live that way. You don't have to be that way. And then secondly, he just summarizes completely. Real gut check. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. Visit the orphans and the widows in their affliction and keep oneself unstained from the world. Authentic faith sees the plight of the powerless. We have a broken heart for it. And the reason is before we met Christ and that implanted word changed us, that's what we were like. We were dead and helpless. And God, being rich in mercy, didn't think of us as a burden. 
Instead, he reached out to us to demonstrate the heart of a father. Ephesians 5 says the heart of a husband. And so if you want to know what you really believe, ask yourself, how do you care for people in need? Are they an encroachment upon your plans? By God's grace, this is something that I think we're invited to be. Like, I thought of this, just, just even a, an encouragement I would say to you, just if I could speak to you as a, like the heart of a pastor here for you, is I want us to be all these things, humbly receiving God's word, right? Living out, living out this thing that he's laid out for us and loving all of those who are powerless. So just practically, I... I I thought of this, like, hey, if you're a kid in the room, can you, can you parents help me out? Can you kids look up to me? If you're like a kid in the room, if you're a grown-up kid too, can, can you help me, like, have you, hey, hey, look at Pastor Jonathan, he's got something to say. You with me? Yeah? I want to tell you something. If anything should ever happen to your parents, I promise you, we'll take care of you. Because God adopted us and has been a father to us and friend did you did you catch that if that's a wrong if i if i fail on that we fail on that we're wasting our time anyway this is a joke so all you kids i'm so glad you're here i love you Uh, we love you and if anything any if you ever need anything i want you to know we're here for you i'll even say to maybe some of the this practically the the you know the wives in the room it says widows uh It'd be foolish of me not to mention that, statistically speaking, we've discovered uh, women live significantly longer than men. Yeah, all the, all the, yeah, mm-hmm. And so, here, ladies, or in this, obviously this, this could apply to anyone, to anyone who loses someone, but ladies, especially here, if and when you outlive him, statistically is going to happen, we love you, we're going to care for you. And if we don't, it doesn't matter what I say anyway. This is a fake, right? We're here for you. We love you, right? And, all the, and, and, and hang with me, you know, because all the, all the, I, I do see the faces of a lot of young men in the room, and they all think I'm talking about somebody else, right? They, so, right, ladies, here we go. But notice it's not just individually that. It's a category. It's meant to be a category of people who are helpless or in need. It's not to be, that's not it, right? Like if you were like, you know, we're the church that cares for, uh, for, for widows and for, for orphans. Like, you know, but what do you, do you like homeless? Do you care for homeless people? No, only widows and orphans, right? That's not. And Jesus says this thing, right? He, he, he gives a list as well, right? They're like, look, you may think you know me, but in the end, when I was naked, you didn't clothe me. When I was in prison, you didn't greet me when I was sick you didn't care for me and they're like when did we not do this and he said when you didn't do to the least of these you didn't do it to me and so there's this category of I would just say like people who are oppressed people who are downtrodden and powerless and you and I because when we were downtrodden when when we we were under the oppressive hand of the enemy Christ took our place and set us free and so therefore one of the implications of this word being implanted in us is that we have a heart for people in need now, he's speaking to Christians here, mostly about other Christians. So I don't think that he means end all poverty, end all oppression in the whole world. However, let me speak to Connection Church. 
This is going to be us. Otherwise, what's the point? Let me just summarize some of these things as they kind of apply to us, and I, I want to leave us with some good news on this. Like, did you see kind of like the three, uh, I saw at least three different things here. Like, there's kind of like the look intently into the word, right? And then keep yourself unstained from the world, re- repent of rampant wickedness, and then love and care for the powerless. Here's what I know about you, probably. You probably are like fixated on one of those three things. And, and Jesus says all three of these things, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and your mind and all your being and doing and strength, right? So there's this idea that like responding to God rightly is a, is a head, heart, and hands thing, right? And notice James says all of them are included here. Rightly receiving the word includes all of them. So some of you are, are probably from a, you get excited when it says look intently into the word, right? You are, you are doctrinal hounds, man. You're sniffing out like, you're looking for heresy, right? Right? And you, you, you're probably like words like Reformed and Protestant, right? These are, these, are, these are your buzzwords, right? And you're listening for the Johns every time I preach, right? You want to hear me talk about John Calvin, Jonathan Edwards, John Dunn, John Owen, right? John Piper, John MacArthur, right? Like, and if you're really hardcore, you really drink the Kool-Aid, you want me to quote John Knox, right? I mean, like... Like, jokes on you, I quote Charles Spurgeon. So, like, I would just say to you, maybe that's your tradition, right? Right thinking, looking intently into the Word. Praise God for you. I love you. And yet I would say, James doesn't let you just dig into that and stay there. And so often, as I said earlier, like, we can defend sound doctrine in a way that's wicked, that's unholy. And we can do so in a way that's unloving, right? And so I would say to you, in the, you know, in the, in the famous prophetic words of the Detroit prophet Kid Rock, you need to get in the pit and try to love someone. Yeah. Heretic! I know. Imagine that. The second category, did you catch that? People who are undefiled by the word, rebelling against or, like, or turning against wickedness and, the imp- and, and rampant, fil- rampant filthiness, right? So like maybe you're from a tradition that's really fixated on this. It's all about holiness and you border on legalism, right? Like right now you want to know what I think about, uh, you really want to know what I think about alcohol and dancing, Right? And, and you really want to know what I think about the book of Revelation, you probably really like the King James Bible. You're wondering why I don't have one. Praise God for you. I love you. And yet, what we find here is like, hang on. James says that that's just one dimension. That's one dimension. You're missing out on all that is, like, uh, you're missing out on all, the, like, the bigger picture of what's going on and the call to love. Maybe some of you are from another tradition. Maybe like you're all about loving others, right? Just love one another, love people, just love on everybody, just love, 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 right? You, and, and praise God for you, right? Maybe you're from a, a higher church tradition, um, kind of maybe, uh, maybe, maybe raised Catholic or Anglican, Episcopal, something like that, right? Hi, right? You know, somebody, I'm Father Jonathan. And here's what I would say, like, Praise God for you. You love, you love the downtrodden. 
right? And so you're, you're excited. You want to, you're waiting for me to talk about what I think about social justice, what I think about race, what I think about poverty, right? That's what you're listening for. And I said, praise God for you. I love you too. You're in the list. Notice. We are not allowed to be fixated on any of these. Right appropriation of faith, the implanted word, is that we start experiencing fruitfulness and faithfulness across the board. That we look intently into his word. We turn from any sinfulness and wickedness in humility. And we love the people who seem the least and furthest. The people that don't seem to have as much access to the gospel. So friend, are you rightly kind of pressed on by James? Are you a little bit provoked? Did he step on all of our toes equally, right? Why would we do this? Here's, look at Jesus. See how this ends. The reason we can think this way, the reason we can respond in faith to this is that when we were helpless, Christ took us in like a beloved bride and he adopted us as his own children. And so, friend, we have a heart for the orphan and the widow because when we were in that situation, Christ died for us. He laid his life down for us as a beloved bride. I'm sorry, dudes. Right? You, it, but it was all he's in this, he's and brothers in this chapter, right? Wasn't it, ladies? I'm sorry for that. It's an inclusive term. But don't, don't fret too much. We're, in the end, we're a church that's a, a bride, right? So, like, because when we were far from God, he drew us near, so also now we can respond in humility, seeking holiness with a compassion for the people who need help. Not because in and of ourselves we're any good, but because that's exactly what Christ did for us. Let's pray together and thank him for that. Jesus, thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you so much for your mercy. Uh, God, I thank you that in my helpless estate, you reached out towards me and called me to yourself. I thank you that uh, even now this, this wisdom is beyond me. I, I confess my own inability to even put it into words. I pray that, that your word would endure and there would be faithful application and doing as a result. God, I thank you that you loved us when we were far off. I thank you for uh, those in this room that we'll get a chance to demonstrate gospel care for, we'll get a chance to, to preach hope to the, to the orphan and to the widow. I thank you for some in this room who've already demonstrated so much care and love and compassion uh, to those who have lost loved ones and to those that are fatherless. I thank you for the way I can see God's grace as a father towards me and them. May this shape us, change us, may it humble us that we receive this implanted worth with meekness May it free us from outrage for infractions upon our own earthly kingdom. May it allow us to receive grace in our failure, and may it allow us to respond in love and compassion to all those around us, especially those who have been adopted by the Father and drawn in by the loving husband that is Jesus Christ. Thank you for this good news demonstrated to us in Christ. Amen.